Welcome to Mistaken Identity, a podcast about unexpected lessons for building great products that customers love. I'm Matt Dennett. Today, I'll interview Trisha Price, Chief Product Officer at Pendo. She'll talk about the importance of constant experimentation and putting your product at the center of everything you do. Tune in to hear Trisha describe how to act smart within today's hype cycle, especially when it comes to AI today on Mistaken Identity. Today's episode of Mistaken Identity is brought to you by Okta. We do identity so you can do you. Find us at Okta.com. Welcome to today's episode of Mistaken Identity. We welcome Trisha Price, Chief Product Officer at Pendo. Trisha, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me today. To get started, why don't we let our listeners know a little bit more about what you do at Pendo and what it means to be a Chief Product Officer. At Pendo, we really help make software experiences better. And as you know, Matt, pretty much every company today is a software company. And digital has really taken over how we do everything in our lives, whether it's work or home life. And so Pendo's mission is really to help make those experiences better, uh, to give uh, product managers and others the tools they need to really perfect those user experiences to understand how people utilize their software uh, and and make them better. And uh, my role at Pendo, as you said, is the chief product officer, which is pretty fun because as the chief product officer at Pendo, I get to create product for other product people, which is a really fun position to be in. It's very meta, creating product for product people. I love it. That's awesome. And you, you hit it. That's the name of the game, right? Is creating amazing experiences that customers love. Uh, and I really think that, you know, that's that's what it comes down to with, with being in product. But maybe tell us a little around how you got into your role, if we do a bit of a historical. Yeah, sure. So um, I was an engineer right out of college and, um, you know, spent almost all of my cre- career building products. Um, before I came to Pendo, I was the chief product officer at Encino, which is a cloud banking application. And um, I was there from fairly early days all the way post IPO. And as I started to think about what was next for me, I was so attracted to Pendo, um, sort of for that meta that you just talked about, like having the ability to create the tools that I had always wished I had over my 20 plus year career of building products. Um, I felt, you know, I was flying blind a lot of the time, not really understanding how my users were utilizing the products. Where should I invest? Right. As a, as a product leader, as a CPO, you're constantly thinking about the outcomes you're trying to drive. And being able to be a part of building those tools to help drive those business outcomes was pretty exciting to me. In addition, there's been such a focus on the product-led movement and product-led growth, and Pendo is such an important part of that movement that that was really attractive to me. So as I was looking for my next opportunity to learn and grow and make a difference on the product community, this just felt like a great place to land. Oh, that's awesome. And you hit on something there. I think that's top of mind for a lot of product folks these days, and that's product-led growth, right? Yeah. Especially if you're a SaaS company, I think it's not only is it a new trend, I just think that if you are an application and you happen to be a SaaS application, it's really about product-led growth. That's how you drive uh, you know, users and drive a lot of retention and those amazing experiences that you talked about as well. But what to you, as you define it, what is being product-led actually, what does it mean? To me, I talk a lot about product-led 
And product-led to me, product-led growth is just a subset of product-led, right? Because a lot of times when we think about product-led growth, we think about the buying experience, we think about free products, and we think about free to paid. And and when I think about product-led, it's putting your product at the center of everything you do, not just the buying experience, right? It's when we get help, when we're trying to do something, being able to do that within our product, right? When you think about your users and your customers' journeys, I think Traditionally, we thought about when they logged in and the activity and workflow they were trying to do. And now it's like, no, from the time they search for your product till how they try your product, to how they buy your product, to how they renew, to how they use, how they get help, um, and really thinking about that holistic journey. And so that's how I think about product-led. And I think that the great thing about the product-led movement is you, you mentioned user experience. And if you're going to have unassisted or relatively low assisted buying experiences and trial experiences, you really have to nail that new user experience and the user experience overall. And that doesn't just benefit your free users or your new user onboarding. It benefits everybody in your community. And I think with, with the whole digital focus and transformation that we've seen over the last few years, users just don't have a lot of patience for friction anymore. None of us do. And so the product-led movement is a nice way for all of us to continue to measure and monitor that uh, whole experience and continue to, to remove some of that friction. You hit on journey, and I think that's such an important part of it as well, is that the experience with your end user, with your customer starts at registration. It starts at that first touch point at registration. You talked about friction, and that's a really important point as well, I think, especially at the registration process, because if there's a lot of friction at that account creation or registration process, it's really difficult for that user to have a positive experience immediately out the gate with, uh, with your brand. What are some things do you feel that make for a really great customer experience within an application itself? First, it's being intuitive right? It's understanding your user's mental model and what are they trying to do and making it easy for them to do it. Like people don't want to hunt and pack. They don't want to have to go read a how-to doc to figure out how to do something. So it has to be natural and it has to be intuitive, um, which means constant measurement and constant experimentation to achieve your outcomes. You know, you mentioned registrations a few minutes ago, right? That's one example. Um, it could be completing a workflow within your product post-registration, but whatever it is that you're trying to optimize for, you need to know what your outcome is and have just constant improvement and constant experimentation to achieve that outcome. And if you're trying to get it down in steps or higher completion rates or higher conversion rates, whatever that outcome is, it's just relentless focus on that that number or that outcome that you're trying to achieve and experimentation to get there because it, it's the little things that matter in that experience um, to, to, to remove that friction. And are you seeing any trends around this within the industry, within peers or otherwise, in terms of how you keep that customer experience at the center? Oh, I, I definitely think so. I think everybody is more focused on it now than they ever were. You know, I think if you look back, B2C companies have been highly 
focused on this for quite some time um, and have done some better than others, <laughs> but most of them a really good job of, of creating this culture of user experience at the center of everything they do and experimentation and measurement. But I think when you go to B2B companies or you even go to non-software companies who are creating digital experiences or digital channels for their customers, um, though this might be a little newer of a muscle for those people. And this product-led movement and the user experience is something that is definitely growing in focus and maturity in those places. And they're almost sort of catching up in focus and maturity to to some of the B2C experiences that we've seen for some time. Yeah, I'd love, and I love that. I'd love to chat a little more around your experience as well and how you've seen product management change across what's being required to build great products at a tech company like Encino that you mentioned in your past um, versus maybe a financial services company like Primatics Financial. Have you seen changes and sort of the approach there over time? I, I sure have. You know, I think there's there's a couple things. One, product management as a whole one of the biggest things I've seen, and, and I talked about this a little bit with your outcomes, it used to be, show me your roadmap, and I'm holding you accountable to shipping your roadmap, and success for a product manager or success for a product leader was all about, did you ship what you said you were going to do? And like, do you have a good roadmap, and did you ship against it? And you know, there might have been some like NPS and like, do people like you and your product involved in there? But it felt like product was fairly separated from the true business outcomes like revenue growth, right? Or churn or retention. Um, and now it feels like product leaders are much more accountable to being business leaders and having a seat at the table as a business leader. And now the craft of product management is so much more focused on the market or the outcome or what are you trying to achieve? Hey, I'm trying to help get my product into a new portion of the market, or I'm trying to increase retention in this part of the market that I'm already in. And yes, you have to ship features to do that, obviously, and you need a roadmap against it. And that part hasn't changed in the details of the craft, but it's much more, much more focused, I feel, in terms of business outcomes. And that's a trend I think that's, you know, you just see more and more. It's that roadmap or that path to achieving your vision um, and driving innovation what are your thoughts on how folks can really balance innovation and the customer experience at the same time? Because a lot of times it's really where you put your efforts and your focus, but do you have thoughts on where and how folks might be able to balance innovation with that user experience? I mean, to me, I think they're one and the same. Yeah. Right? Like, if I'm, like, for me right now, I'm working on, like everybody else, some AI innovations and launching some new modules and products that are really AI-based, it's like, okay, do I just check a box and say, oh, I innovated, I've got a new AI product, or if I'm really saying no, what I'm trying to drive is an outcome, I'm trying to get more value to my customer base, so something's automated that wasn't automated, or they're getting an insight that they weren't getting before, I can't do that without user experience being at the center of it, because otherwise they're not going to get the value that you're you're aiming for, right? And so for me, like for me, my user experience team, my research and design teams are critical when I'm thinking about new innovations and new product launches. Like they are at the center of the research and the design teams. Yes, product is obviously understanding the market and the requirements, but the how and what that experience will look like is, is equally important to me when we're innovating. I think you're absolutely right. They're intrinsically linked, right? It's 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 around how you drive innovation 
for your customer. And I love that we've got a couple minutes into the podcast already and, and we've mentioned AI. That's that's perfect. So that's one check mark for the, the uh, business buzzword bingo uh, card there for folks to keep a track at home. But uh, <laughs> even if thinking about, you know, uh, balancing this, because I mean, the user experience is really uh, oftentimes perceived as a balancing act between security and like you mentioned friction. It's, it's really this balancing point between security and the experience. Security obviously is meant to put controls in place to validate you are who you say you are, or make sure that you have the right, you know, credentials to access this application. Um, and sometimes if it's, if there's too much friction in that process, right, if we're constantly challenging the user at login and subsequent login, et cetera, with an MFA challenge and, you know, pick out all the cats wearing the hats in this CAPTCHA challenge, uh, you know, that, that does it at the detriment a lot of times of the user experience. So, do you have any thoughts on on how folks can really think about that balance of delivering security without compromising the user experience and consequently delivering a great user experience without compromising security? To me, whether you're B2C or B2B or whatever digital product or channel you're trying to build, for your customers, trust is at the center. If If customers can't trust you and can't trust your products, you're done. It doesn't matter what value you offer. You, you can't lose their trust. And so security has to be at the center of everything that you do. And that's how we certainly think about it at Pendo. And so I think you can balance the two of those, right? I think there's been um, a lot of advan- advancements with single sign-on and other tools. And, you know, you mentioned MFA, like there's multiple ways you can go about MFA. And yeah, does MFA create one more step in the process and a little bit of friction? Yes, but at the same time, if if customers can't trust that they can do business with you and that their data um, is is to be protected, they're also not going to do business with you no matter what value you deliver. And so, you know, finding that, special intersection of the two is all of our jobs when we create digital experiences. And thinking about how you're doing that at Pendo, right, with with creating trust, are there things that you're thinking about from how you're building those experiences at Pendo with how you're actually trying to establish trust with your customers? Anything that, you know, folks could kind of think about or glean from what you're doing at Pendo? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is, you know, really limiting PII and collection of PII, except when you really need it, right? Like don't capture, you know, important, sensitive information that you don't need, which might be a completely different approach. Like if it's non-sensitive information, you might want to collect everything you might ever right? Because you don't always know when you're a data company, analytics company, which we are, you don't know what you're going to need now, later. But when it comes to sensitive PII type information, I think you really, you know, flip the way you think about that and collect only the minimum that you need. So so for us, that's one piece of the puzzle in in how we think about it. Um, and, and so that's one layer of protection, for sure. AI is another example, right? Like now, you know, with all of the, the new large language language models and all of the tools that are out there, now you're going to have to share that information with those tools as well in order for your user base and customer base to take advantage of your new AI features. How do you think about that? How do you think about what information is reasonable to share with those tools? Where do you need opt-ins? And we spend a lot of time thinking about that as a group, cross-functionally with our CISO, our product team, our, our, our legal team, and really trying to make sure we're doing the right things for our customers and providing the value and balancing that with trust and security. 
Yeah. And, and what I love about that, too, and I think like that's such a, a great resonant point, too. One of the things I think you said that really resonated with me is around PII and only collecting, you know, the, the information or the data or the insights from the customer that you're going to use and also letting them know, not only enabling them to consent that they could use, you can use that data, but also letting them know how that data is going to be used. When it comes to collecting and incorporating those identity level insights or information about your customer into your product roadmap, do you have thoughts on how that influences your development cycle or how folks can use that to better build an experience within their SaaS application leveraging that data? Yeah, I don't I don't know that we think about it as its own thing. Do you know what I mean? It's not like we're sitting there going like, hey, when we think about our roadmap, which pieces of this is security and which pieces of this is, you know, minimizing or maximizing data collection. I think for us, we almost, we try to always start outside in versus inside out, right? And it's like, what is the customer problem we're trying to solve? What is the customer pain? What is the job to be done? How are we going to deliver value for our customers so that they love this feature and they use it? And then you go into, okay, well, then how am I going to deliver this in a safe way? How am I going to deliver this in a secure way? How am I going to collect the information I need to solve this problem now and down the line while at the same time um, not introducing risk where we don't need to? You know, for not only every company, but tech companies specifically, I think a lot of time we get really excited about our own technology so much so that we start to either speak in acronyms out to the market and to our customers Instead of understanding what it is, what what is the challenge or the problem that they're trying to solve, and then pairing, you know, our technology as the solution to that problem, um, it's a very pragmatic way of thinking. There was actually in, in the theme of pragmatic, there was a, a former product leader, a colleague of mine that I worked with. He used to carry around a little coffee mug that said, "Your opinion, although interesting, is irrelevant," and meaning you you need to be thinking about what your customer thinks. It doesn't matter what I think or what the salespeople think or what we in engineering think or products think, it only matters what the customer thinks about that experience or their product experience. And it was really funny. Oftentimes he would carry that mug around and, you know, someone would come up to him and ask him for a specific new feature or a requirement. And he would hold the cup and kind of take a sip of his coffee and say, oh yeah, tell me more about that feature. What's the, uh, what's the customer think about that? And, you know, the, the person would kind of say, what? No, like it's, it's just something I think we need to develop. So I love that you said the the outside in versus inside out because I think that's such a critical point. And Matt, you know, we were talking about AI and the buzz a little bit so far, but we haven't dove into it much yet. I think like, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing very a lot of varying approaches since ChatGPT came out around just shipping to say you shipped something, right? Kind of to your mug point, right? Or people who have really put thought into solving real customer pain and delivering value and going outside in. And I think when it comes to features, we can always run that risk of inside out. But I think when you're rushing and there's a hype cycle like there is right now with AI, it's even easier to fall into that inside out trap of like, hey, I want to keep up with with everybody in the industry and I want to keep up with the hype cycle and say I did something. And in that case, you typically go inside out because it takes time to go outside in. You, you asked me about innovation versus user experience to go outside in when you innovate and 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 be able to get 
feedback about the pain you're solving, but at the same time, we're not creating faster horses, we're creating a car, like that does take time. Um, and so to me, you know, I think, again, back to that innovation and user experience and the outside in piece kind of all coming together there. It's such a good point. And I think it comes down to the utility it provides, right? It's not a, just a matter of creating a new co-pilot because you can, because the models exist and that it would be a cool thing. And maybe it is a cool thing, but it actually has to provide utility. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, even messaging applications that have implemented co-pilots now where you have your own AI assistant inside of the messaging application. I don't know if you've played around with any of those, but those AI co-pilots don't really provide a lot of utility. You'll ask it a question that it'll kind of like, it doesn't respond with with anything like meaningful. It's basically just responding given the con in the context that you've given it. So yeah, I think uh, if I am, I'm in full agreement with you that it's it's not AI for the sake of AI or really tech for the sake of tech. It's it's the focus of what is the outcome that that's driving again, you know, from an outside in perspective for that customer, for the end user of the user itself. Yeah, Love and it. same for security, right? It's like you don't look at your roadmap just for the sake of a security feature, you look at your roadmap for the value you're delivering to your customer and you make sure you do it in a safe, trusted, secure way. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. With AI like and LLMs and ChatGPT and everything that's out there, it's a hugely disruptive technology. And I think it's something that will absolutely change you know, the way that we think about how we approach and interact with applications. But you know, it's it's beyond being a disruptor. I think it's something that you need to think about is is just that utility it provides. But staying on that point of disruption for a second, I'd love your thoughts on, do you think it's more important to be a disruptor like in a large company or a smaller company or, or who should be more of a disruptor in that case? You know, I'm going to answer this in a couple parts, which is first I think is like when AI comes out, which is kind of a disruptor to your point. I mean, right, it certainly has been over the last six months. Um, who has an advantage sort of the big company, and, and it's all relative who you call a big company versus a small company, probably where you work. Um, but I do think that incumbents have an advantage because they have the data and they have the trust, but they have to move fast. When you're innovating and you're trying to make sure you deliver value, like we were talking about earlier, and not just innovate for the sake of innovating and not just disrupt to say you disrupted, you don't disrupt because you have an announcement or a product announcement. You disrupt because people adopt and use your product and you change the way they do something, whether it's in their personal life or at work, right? You significantly can change um, how they operated or the tools that they had or their ability to operate. And so... You know, that's what disruption is all about, which means you have to actually deliver value. I believe, especially with, you know, sort of the advancements in AI, incumbents have an advantage because they have the data. And it's really hard to build good AI and without the data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the bigger you are, the harder it is to stay nimble, the harder it is to stop your roadmap, the more product commitments you have and customer commitments you have, and it's harder to just move sort of the ship from one way to the other. And so you got to be careful. And sometimes that requires creativity about innovation teams or pulling people off to do something. It requires leadership um, to do the hardest thing the hardest thing, which is to say no to things, right? It's to to stop and say, this super valuable thing I loved and was doing, I'm going to stop doing so that I can take advantage of this new, you know, disruption in the industry and, and innovate and take some risk generally. And that's really hard to do. 
Yeah, and there's a theme, I think, in what you're saying there, too, around getting to market fast, right? Especially within, I think, the SaaS industry in general, it's it's really, it, there's this concept of like building versus buying, right? Do I, because I'm a smaller company, I'm a SaaS company, I love building things. So I feel like I need to build everything. But to some point, you know, it becomes too much to manage, whether you're building an identity system or you're building, you know, a front-end CMS or whatever you happen to be building as not your core product. And that's kind of the point is it takes you away from that innovation because your small teams are getting pulled off into things that don't make sense, but we're trying to build it because we're builders and we want to build things. Do you have thoughts on, or maybe even any stories on this concept of like build versus buy? I mean, I'm a big fan of, of buy partner um, and, and lean on people for what they're good at right? And making sure your engineering teams are focused on delivering customer value and doing what you're really good at, because there's always more work to be done. Integrations is a good one, Mm, right? We all built, you know, point-to-point integrations, and now there's lots of iPaaS providers out there that can help us scale integrations. I think that's a good example. I think actually ChatGPT and the large language models, we actually, a real story for us at Pendo, we actually built our own LLM to take um, one of our features. We, we have in-app NPS and there's verbatims, right? And I'm most people, including me, have a group of people who every single month or every quarter go look at all of those verbatims and then they write up an analysis of the promoters and the detractors and help me look at my product and think about where I should be investing to, to make improvements. And we, and we have the same thing on our feedback product, which is where we, you take enhancement requests, right? And the same thing, like, what are the themes? What are you seeing? So we actually wrote our, our, our own large language models to do that. And right as we are releasing it, ChatGPT comes out. And you're like, (laughs) which one do you do, right? And so it's interesting. There are differences in what we can do um, on our own versus what we can do with ChatGPT. And there's pluses and minuses. And there's probably certain parts of the market where one makes a lot of sense for us and the other doesn't. But like you got, you can't just keep the train running. You got to stop and pause and go, this is a real moment in time to look ourselves in the mirror and not just have a sunk cost fallacy, but really evaluate which tool makes more sense given the market. And would we have done something different had we known? Maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, and same thing for integrations. Like just because you build a Salesforce integration or a HubSpot integration, you know, doesn't mean that now that these iPaaS vendors are out there, you don't reevaluate and say, hey, now it's time to move to one of them. Well, I think oftentimes when we're building new products and new experiences, a lot of times we want to, you know, we want to get it to, you know, we want to get to market quickly. We want to get to market fast. We want to have an MVP. How do you know if, I guess, a first you're building the right thing. And what do you put into an MVP to know if you're actually launching something of value? I struggle with MVPs a lot. What does that mean? Like, is it a minimum lovable product? Is it a minimum sellable product? What does viable mean? So to me, it's getting very specific with outcomes. And we tend to write down 
the outcomes we expect. So if this is early stage, it's X number of design partners and that the design partners want to continue. And then once you get into more of a beta mode, it's like, this is how many subscribers we want to beta, but this is how often we want them to be continuing to use the product, not just that it's beta. And then at some point you need to ensure that they're getting the value, not just that they're using it, but that they're getting the value that they would want out of it to pay for it, right? Whether they're paying now or or after you come out of beta, you're going to start charging. And so you start to think about product market fit scores and how do you measure product market fit scores and put real outcomes in there. Like we expect this percentage of our user base to buy this product. We expect this percentage of our user base to use it and not just use it once, but be using it on a daily basis or a weekly basis and coming back and second week retention for this new product. So to me, it's getting very specific about the measurements around product market fit versus just saying, as long as I deliver these seven features, I've done an MVP. And I love that too, because I think I, I've always found that MVP is even in the context of a minimum viable product is is really monolithic, right? It's you're kind of working towards this thing that you're trying to launch in a minimum capacity because you you're trying to you're trying to test it. But something you said there about the outcomes and even just this concept of testing is I think what in SaaS and today and sort of this this concept of B2B and digital applications is impactful experiments. And it's having really great outcomes, as you kind of mentioned. Um, would love to hear if you can think of any, if there's a really impactful experiment that you can think of that you've run recently. Um, you know, what are some things that you learned? What, what inspired you to conduct the experiment in the first place? I mean, one that is on top of mind because I just looked at it today with my team um, was around some changes to our pricing transparency on our website. So you were talking about registrations and we were talking about our PLG experience and being able for our our buyer's journey to make sure they understand what's in each of our plans, what they cost, and how to choose the right plan for them. And we just recently ran an experiment on multiple different sort of pricing plan optionality um, designs. And we talked about sort of sliders versus ads and how people reacted to each of those different experiments and which one helped get our customers most comfortable that they understood what they were buying and that they were getting the right plan for them. And so that's a place that we've recently run some experiments to try to perfect that experience. Sometimes it can be just as simple as that, right? Do I add a slider here? Do I add a checkbox here? It doesn't have to be a, you know, a massively intensive experiment. It could be something where as long as you've got, I think, good exit criteria or good outcomes that you're trying to measure against, uh, it can be a very simple experiment. It's something that can end up being very impactful. It can, yeah. And and sometimes it's much bigger, right? Sometimes it's like, how do we have discoverability of this feature? And is it moving it in your navigation, right? Is it just putting an in-app message or an in-app guide up to make sure that the right segments of your users know about it? Um, is it around enablement to your sales team or your sales engineering team so that they know how to talk about it um, in the sales process and your customer success team? Like, so there's lots of different ways that you can run experiments to your out to to get your outcomes beyond not only making changes to your product and doing sort of the like A/B testing experimentation we're used to. I think from the perspective of some of the, the interactions that I've had recently with customers is they're looking at when we think about the digital experience and they're looking across all of the digital touch points that they have with their customers. In some cases, it can be dozens 
some cases, hundreds of applications or at least digital touch points for their customers. What what are some ways that you that you might think about or that maybe our listeners could think about and how they streamline the customer experience across all of those digital touch points? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you need tools to to monitor that usage. Of course, I think that because that's what we do at Pendo. <laughs> so maybe I'm a little bit biased here, Matt. Um, but but for us, you know, how we do this using our own tool, um, using what I call Pendo on Pendo, um, is you know, one you can certainly just do very, very simple metrics, like understanding what are your least used and highest used features, right? And that's one part. You can certainly look at, at paths and funnels um, and understand how people are navigating through your product and where they're getting stuck and have the, the sophisticated analytics to tell you that piece, right? Um, but then you can take it in a different angle, right? Which is not just the technical aspect of like, what did the user do? Where did they click and where did they get stuck? But, but what were they trying to achieve? Like, what was the workflow they were trying to do? Did they complete it? How long did they complete it? How can you compare one of your user's journey with another and say, why does it only take this person this amount of time and it takes these people this amount of time? And, you know, what, whether that's clicks or amount of time to complete and what, what, how do I help the people who are taking twice as long, do it more effectively like the people who are doing it really quickly. Or, man, I thought this workflow would only take X amount of seconds or minutes to complete, and it's taking much longer. And so it's like, to me, it's not just looking at those click paths and stuck, you know, where do people fall off, but it's workflow completion time and having that kind of more personal insight around what the person was trying to achieve and and really focusing on that and making that better. That's another place you can do experimentation. Once you understand okay, 50% of my users can do it in this amount of time. Well, I want 75, I want 100% of my users to do it this way, more effective way, right? Um, and so I, I think that's how I, I think a lot about the user's journey and measurement of it and, and perfection. And I think that's such a, a great point too, is I think it's the measurement of multiple different touch points as well. Because I think of that in the context of even at Okta and how we think about identity and the journey your digital journey of your customer as they interact with your brand. And some of the things that we're measuring as is failed signups or, you know, um, fraudulent registrations, right? Where you have a bot, effectively an automated attack coming in and registering fake accounts. That has an operational cost in the business. How long is someone taking to authenticate, right? That it has an impact, whether you use a social login or a password and a username, like all of that impacts the customer experience. Thinking about, passkey technology and how it's making it not only secure, but also a lot faster for you to log in. Um, how long is my password taking to reset? Uh, that's a big thing. And it's a huge support cost for folks too. Um, if anyone here listening has ever had to reset a password, I'm sure it's nobody listening. I've uh, never, never, Matt, I've ever. never had to reset a password before. <laughs> and not even in like the last hour. So it's uh, it's definitely something I think things are thinking, like folks are thinking about as you're building, it becomes hugely important. And like you mentioned, even with Pendo, a lot of the, the analytics that you're getting from those interactions are hugely valuable for improving the customer experience, right? Because if you don't measure it, like what measure, what gets measured gets done, right? And right. if you can't see it, you can't, you can't actually do anything about it. So I think it's so important to have those metrics on uh, understanding the customer experience. 
And I love your point about passwords. Um, to me, when you were asking me about my point of view on product-led, and I was talking about how it's very easy for product managers, I think especially in B2B, to focus on the workflows or the user journeys, and they don't think about the user journeys as also the registration and the buying and the password and the logging in. They tend to think about it as, you know, whatever tasks they were building or trying to complete. The user doesn't care, right? Your users, it's the whole thing. It's their experience with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. How have you thought about how you, you know, collect or interact with that data over time or that user? Have you thought what ways are you thinking about making it easier for your customers to interact with Pendo? So a couple things there. In terms of, of collection of data um, and, and Pendo, segmentation is key in Pendo. And so what I mean by that is segmentation of, it could be job role, but a lot of times it's how they used your product, meaning this is the first time they logged in and the first time people log into your product, they behave like this or they get stuck here um, versus the first time they ever used this feature versus people who are um, expert users in your product and what are they saying? And like, even we were talking about MPS and, and enhancement requests earlier, that, that segmentation of what are people saying and how do they feel about your product and how do they use your product based on, um, how new they are, how experienced they are. Maybe their company has been a long time, um, customer, but they're new to the user experience and what does that look like, which might be different than the whole company just onboarding. And so for us at Pendo, we think a lot about um, personalization of experiences based on that segmentation. Um, and so earlier, you know, Matt, you were asking me about PII. And that was my point is like, you can collect a lot of information that's valuable to drive personalized experiences and understand segmentation without worrying about PII, right? The fact that you're a first-time user of my product, I don't need to know your address or social security number for that, right? And yet my ability to craft a specialized experience for you is much better if I focus on that segmentation. Yeah, it's such a good point because I feel like like privacy and you know security and PII and all of these like regulations that are in place, like it doesn't mean it's the death of personalization. It doesn't mean it's the death of providing a personalized experience tailored to your customer. You just you need to make sure that you have the controls in place to collect the data from your customers in a consented way, right? that it's consent forward, that you're regularly validating from that customer that you have the consent to use their data, that you are providing insight into how their data is going to be used. And even from an experience standpoint, that you're not trying to collect it all at account creation because it's going to take forever and it's going to impact the customer's experience, right? Think about the last time you signed up for any application. If it had more than five fields, what are the odds that you, you, know, you went somewhere else? You're gone. And so I think there's ways to your point that you can you can collect that data, like the data that you can use to personalize the experience from your customers, but do it over time. Think creatively. creatively about, you know, what do you need to ask them for versus based on the data you already have, what can you interpret and still personalize based on versus every time data collection doesn't mean asking a user to type something in. That's right. Right. Don't put the burden of your personalization back on them. <laughs> To type something in and tell you things about them. I mean, I feel that would be an awful experience, right? It's, right. It's, 
I, I think about how simple some, uh, you know, creating an account, a digital account is now with some applications with something like a social sign in, I mean, or a sign in with Google or a sign in with Apple or whatever you, whatever uh, social ID you use. But that's so much easier. All I do is click sign in with Google. You know, it basically has instructed the metadata within that API to be pulled back and it populates because I've given it consent. So it's already consent forward. I don't have to worry about creating a new password that I'm never going to remember or that I'm going to have to reset it. And, you know, the next time I use the application, which is the case in many applications. But I think it's it's such a critical point that you just said is that you don't it doesn't mean the death of web pers- of personalization. And a lot of times you have the data you need uh, and just make sure you're collecting it in a consent forward way with your customers. Matt, you just made me think of um, when I think about experiences, how all of the the shopping experiences between Apple Pay and Google Pay and PayPal. I mean, I don't know about you, but I swear package shows up every single day on my front step. They have made it way too easy for me to go through their experience and buy things. And it's true though, like I buy so much more because I just, and I don't even have to sign up to your point. Like I don't even have to use those social logins. I don't have to use anything. And I don't have to type in my address and I don't have to type in my credit card. And that magical experience really does reduce friction and really does um, increase my likelihood to complete the experience and help them get their outcome of, of revenue. <laughs> I think about how convenient those experiences are now versus 15, 20 years. I think about this, just something, something five simple. Years ago, five years ago, it's just... It's such a, a create like a magical experience to think about something as simple as ordering a coffee and how much that has changed uh, and how convenient that experience is now. It, it is. And then, Matt, that comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where I think those B2C experiences were the first ones to like figure out removing the friction. And then it's like as B2B product managers, as companies, traditional companies that are not SaaS companies who are creating digital experiences for their employees, not just for their customers, those same principles are there. And that I think is now what's trying to catch up to, you know, over the last 20 years and especially five, I think COVID like hyper accelerated that experience to the things you're talking about, about the coffee shop and my coffee's just sitting there to like, how does that relate to me getting my job done at the office? And how do we make those experiences as equally frictionless as getting our coffee? That's such a good point because we're still consumers at the end of the day. And that doesn't change when I walk through the door of my office, right? Right. I still still want to be able to access my work applications with the speed and simplicity and convenience of accessing my coffee shop application. Like, that is, that's what our customers expect in a B2B context today or in a consumer context today. It doesn't matter. Love it. I want to, I want to think of a little bit more. Maybe we can, uh, we can insert some business buzzword bingo uh, terms here, but thinking a little around the future. All right. We talked about AI. We talked, we talked about, you know, chat GPT and some of these, uh, these new technologies that, that, that were there, but maybe it could even be that, but what's, what's the tech development that you're most looking forward to? I mean, I'm certainly laser focused on that right now. So it's top of mind, right? We are, um, we, we just finished our, our hackathon about a month ago and we had it all AI themed and it was really fun just to watch the incredible amount of progress that people can make in just a few days. Um, I think with the big data sets that we have and then being able to utilize these large language models, it's pretty, it's pretty fabulous to watch the kinds of innovation that can happen and the problems we can solve. Um, and so it's, it's remarkable. It's fun to watch. 
And um, it certainly is probably one of the most top of mind things for me today. I think what's interesting, you know, I mean, obviously, large language models, and there is a lot of text out there um, that we can provide value. But there's also a lot of data, right, non-text data, where, you know, your more traditional models um, data science models, et cetera, can, can provide value. I'm really interested to watch how the two of those come together to solve problems. Like who the, think the people who are able to utilize the, the large language models that are out there and then combine them with some more of the traditional data science type models and really put that magic together to give insights and automation and solve customer problems are the people who will really come out um, as winners in the software space. And the space is just, it's evolving so fast that you just, you need to be a sponge. You need to absorb everything as it's coming in and then apply it right away and run a, run a number of experiments, right? And experiment with things. If it doesn't work, then you move on to the next thing. And I think this, it's, it, if anything, it's almost, I feel it's sped up a lot of the innovation cycles that traditional SaaS companies have been, have been using. We talked about the monolith of like an MVP. I don't feel like you have that anymore. You're able to do things a lot faster and get results and understand what the value or the outputs of, of that experiment are a lot quicker than you ever have been. Yeah. Yeah. Then the challenge becomes more like pricing and packaging, right? Because it's like you're innovating so quickly, you're getting things out there so quickly. And then it's like, okay, how do you think about monetizing and getting some of those outcomes out of it? It's hard when you're experimenting and moving quickly. And then at some point you have to kind of come behind and rethink about pricing and packaging. I think that'll be fascinating to watch that as sort of the next phase of, of the AI advancements. That's, that's a really good one as well. And I think that's a skill even for product managers to have. Do you have thoughts on maybe underrated product management skills? Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, Underrated product management skills. One is like people who have the superpower to know the product in and out and like what it can be capable of, like that can be incredibly valuable right? Like to know what could be hard, to know how to push the limits, to know how to maximize customer value by minimizing R&D spend and do interesting, innovative things that don't take forever and can constantly make improvement. That is like a super powerful skill that great product managers have. And then like on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, it's like, who has the superpower to really understand the market? And like, what are people going to pay for? And why are they going to value it? It's like, those are sort of like opposite ends of the spectrum, but equal superpowers in a PM. I love that too. And it's really that balance between understanding the market or the customer challenges and under, deeply understanding the tech and then being able to, to marry that or put that together. I think that's excellent. Yeah, I don't know if you, Matt, you've probably seen like the whole debate that's out there lately, like the whole Airbnb, like product managers, product marketing. And I mean, this kind of comes to that, right? And I, I think it's a little flippant to act like it's one or the other. Do you know what I mean? I agree, and yeah. it's like, to me, the magic comes when you're doing both. And you can't have product managers or a function. Maybe you can have people, but you can't have product management functions that are only technical, writing tickets, you know, and you and, and don't understand 
understand the market. And you can't just sit there and sort of hand wavy, oh, this is the outcome in the market. Like you still have to dive in and do experiments and understand what features to build um, and what those user experience are going to be like. And so to me, like that magical of meeting those in the middle is is the people that break away and win. I agree. And that's some really great advice. What, what other advice do you have for aspiring product managers that are looking to get into tech? Spend time with customers, spend time with sales, um, be curious, use your product a lot. If you have free versions of your product, download it, use it, um, have your friend do it, watch <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> them, make your new employees do it. I love it. Those are all awesome. So just uh, in the last little bit here, Trisha, we have a couple of minutes left here. We'd love to, to get a sense for some of the things uh, that, you know, that you're thinking about. You've just some fun things. What's your favorite thing that you're reading or watching right now? Like everybody else, we just finished Ted Lasso and we're on to succession now. It's sort of um, entertaining and ridiculous. It's summertime for us. So I live at the beach. So it's a lot of time outside playing pickleball, going for walks on the beach, paddle boarding, things like that. So, you know, we're trying to spend less time indoors reading and watching TV right now and more time. Um, that's why I'm so tan. Uh, <laughs> time outside and, and enjoying the weather. This is probably going to end up being your, that's going to probably be your answer to this next question. But if you had to live anywhere in the world, where would that be? Yeah, I don't think I would move. I live right. in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, and it is an absolutely um, special place. Um, I do love the mountains equally, but if I had a secondary place I was able to spend a lot of time, it would probably be either in Park City, Utah in the mountains, um, or I did have um, an incredible experience being able to go to Switzerland last year and spend some time in Zermatt, and that was also absolutely stunning. And I don't know if I want to live there, but man, I could spend some time there skiing and hiking. You have the mountains, and it's it's the adventure sport capital of the world, right? Interlochen, you can go hang gliding, paragliding, you know, canyoning through big, you know, the, the mountains effectively. It's, it's such a great, it's great spot. I love it. It is. We did all of that. And I just closed my eyes and <laughs> couldn't watch my children doing the things and just <laughs> focused on my own safety through every day, not what they were doing. Well, that's awesome. Well, listen, Trisha, this has been amazing. Really great to get your perspective as a chief product officer at Pendo, uh, you know, to understand a little more about how you're thinking about building great experiences that customers love across Pen Pendo's applications I want to thank you again for uh, for joining the Mistaken Identity podcast today. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me, and thanks for doing this podcast. That was Trisha Price, Chief Product Officer at Pendo. As we wrap up today's episode, remember that user trust and security is critical to great innovation and successful products. I'm Matt Dennett. Join me next time on Mistaken Identity as we explore how to leverage customer identity to your advantage. Today's episode of Mistaken Identity is brought to you by Okta. We do identity so you can do you. Find us at Okta.com.